Well, again, good morning to you, brothers and sisters. Please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. I pray that you are all blessed by my dear brother Jeremiah Dennis this past week as he preached on Luke 10. I was so appreciative of the exhortation that he gave to us to not be distracted as Martha was, but to find ourselves focused on our soul's priority like Mary, which is to focus on Christ. Being distracted by the cares of this world promotes disunity. It really does. The cares of this world have to fall away. For our unity to grow in here, our cares of this world have to fall away. We can't be distracted. We need to be undistracted. Our great desire is for unity in the body of Christ at CBC. And to create unity here, we want unity not only for our body here, we want unity for you personally with God. We want unity for you with your home. And we want unity for you here in this body of Christ. And the only way to have that happen is if we find each person continuing to focus on Christ. Unity is our focus today. Unity is our focus today. We'll get back into our study of Ephesians. You're in chapter 4 of Ephesians. And as we begin our time this morning, I want you to think with me on this topic of unity. Let's just walk through kind of a discussion. Just pick up a conversation with me on unity. What is unity? Union? Unity is oneness, is it not? Oneness in heart and mind. Oneness in word and deed. Unity is joining with others in a common cause. And I would ask you, what kinds of things cause men to unite? How are men drawn together in heart and mind for a common cause? As I thought on unity and oneness over the course of this last week, I saw quickly that it is so easy to get men to unite on things like entertainment, sports, food, music, and the like. So easy to track down unity when you pursue pleasure. So we see unity is easy when it comes to pleasure. I, I noted in my studies that I, there are 40,000 people, 40,000 people, gathered in Augusta, Georgia, to watch men hit a light, little white ball around at the Masters Championship in early April. 40,000 people. You can add to pleasure power. Men unite to gain power for themselves. Whether political power or the power that comes at the end of a Smith & Wesson, ammo and gum shows are a popular place to gather power. You can see men gather for power. That'll happen at the Post Falls Gun Show. Thousands will gather. In just a few weeks, don't ask me when. I'm not going to give you the date. You've got to look it up online. <laughs> Men gather for power, political power, ammunition, guns. You can get a crowd together for power. When the pursuit of power has gone too far, it often means pain for someone else. So on top of pleasure and power, men unite in response to great pain, do they not? We have pain in our society. Men gather and respond to pain. The greatest example of unity in response to pain in recent history that I could come up with is 77 years ago today, June 6th, 1944, Operation Overlord saw 1,200 airplanes, 5,000 ships carry 160,000 troops into battle from England down to France against Hitler's German Nazis as they stormed the beaches of Normandy. Millions of troops from 13 different countries would unite together in England for the purpose, for one purpose, stop Hitler and Nazis and, and the Nazi Germans. And to their great credit, the United States, the British, Canadian, Australian, Belgian, Czech, Dutch, French, Greek, New Zealand, Norwegian, Zimbabwe, and Polish troops united to form the Allied Expeditionary Force that would end Germany's conquest for world domination and restore freedom to Europe. The cost of freedom was paid in the bloods of million, blood of millions of soldiers, united to end the horror and pain caused by German ambition 
and German power. We applaud, do we not? We remember, we revere the unity of the soldiers, sailors, and airmen on D-Day. This day, 77 years ago. The soldiers who died are heroes, and we thank them for the freedom that was gained in their sacrifice. Consider the depth of unity that would draw and gather 13 countries and millions of troops to fight for freedom for Europe, and for the world for that matter, to maintain freedom. What made their unity so special, these troops? The evil of the men they faced. The evil of the men they faced. So unity can be gathered and mustered for the purpose of fighting and combating human evil. Certainly the unity of World War II allied soldiers was stronger than the unity of the players and spectators at the Masters Championship Golf Tournament in Georgia earlier in April. Surely it was, right? Surely the World War II allied soldiers' unity was greater than the unity that we felt at the Post Falls Gun Show in just a matter of a few weeks. It's a greater unity to be an allied soldier in World War II, but is World War II allied soldier unity the best unity ever known to man? Unity that was created because of a response needed to fight the evil of wicked men. What makes the greatest depth of unity? Length and duration of unity is created in what way? How do you achieve the heights of unity as a human being? Does the best unity come only in response to human pain, or does the best unity come in pursuit of God's pleasure? There's a contrast for you. Human pain or God's pleasure? What will cause your greatest unity? Where will we find the greatest unity? Responding to unrighteousness or planning to do great works of righteousness? I I just think back as I I have this setting behind me. This is a, a great thing to look at. Because it's a reminder of the event that was in here on Friday night. And I think of the months of laboring to create the event of unity on Friday night. Which was created in righteousness. Righteousness of the truth. There's considerable unity in pursuing righteousness. Planning to do great works of righteousness. On behalf of God and his pleasure. Do you find that unity is desirable? Even necessary for your life? Brothers and sisters, it is. Christians know that unity is essential to life. Those who are married know that unity is fundamental for your relationship. Even men who go to gun shows know that we were not made to be independent. We were not made to be alone or separated from Glock and Kimber, Smith and Wesley. (laughs) Do you desire unity? Do you want to be part of a group engaged in eternally worthwhile activities? Isn't that why you came to church today? You want the unity of that group, don't you? Well, praise God. It's exactly the desire that he stirs up into the hearts of the people that he's called and saved. You've come to the right place, brothers and sisters, if you're in pursuit of unity. You've come to the church of Jesus Christ, where we find ourselves today in our text in Ephesians 4. And in this text, Paul is telling us, our greatest unity is right here in the church For the glory of God in the pursuit of vertical unity with God and horizontal unity with man, which God has so powerfully made available. Our unity is such a concern for Paul that he demands unity of us. You can see that in chapter 4, verse 3. He says, you be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then jarringly, in verse 4, Paul launches into the vast depths and unlimited heights of the unity that God has so well equipped and supplied to us in the church. 
He moves from the commands that guard the body, walk worthy and preserve unity, to blessings given to the body by God for our motivation, especially the blessing of oneness with each other and with him. All of this leads to our ultimate goal, the building up of the body of Christ. Give commands, share the blessings. Why? To build up the body of Christ, the church, in unity. I've outlined the context of chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 in this way. Body guarding in chapter, or verses 1 to 3. Body blessings are found in verses 4 to 12. And body building is what the aim of 13 through 16 is. I want to read the whole text again with you. From chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. We're going to circle back and we're going to st- discuss specifically verse 4 through 6 today. And, and just as a... Just as a, as, a, as a plea to you for patience, we won't make it through verse 6. I had too much to say in my notes. <laughs> I really wanted to go all the way through verse 6. We're going to make verse 4 today. But 4 through 6 is the aim. I just divided unity. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> verse 4 through 6, we'll circle back where Paul declares, and we receive, the needed motivation for preserving the unity God has so richly supplied. We're going to see motivation to preserve unity. That's what Paul's going to give as he lays out these blessings in verse 4 through 6. Read the text again with me then from verse 1 of chapter 4. Paul says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were also called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us was given, was grace, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended. What does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is him also who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each customized individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. As I read the text, the picture of unity is so powerfully clear. It's profoundly clear right here in the text. Christ is the head, and those who believe in him are his body. That's us. As his body, we do well to function Together with one another. And we must function together with one another, even as the text says properly, so that the body will grow in love and unity. We live in a time, brothers and sisters, not too much like other times or too much different, 
where the church is in great need of clarity and unity. You've got a whole rash of social issues, social justice, LGBTQ, CRT, masks, distancing, disunity abounds. The opportunity for disunity in our community in this time, it abounds. Shall we pursue unity at any cost? Is unity void of discernment? Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, once said, to pursue union at the expense of truth is treason to the Lord Jesus. Spurgeon would know about union void of truth. He saw it in his time 135 years ago, specifically in the downgrade controversy. German scholar Julius Wellhausen and his associates formulated the opinion that the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, were not written by Moses, but rather a collection made by authors over a period of time. This theory was called the documentary hypothesis, and it undermined the inspiration, inerrancy, and authority of the Bible. At the same time that he had to deal with Julius Wellhausen's documentary hypothesis, Charles Spurgeon was dealing with Charles Darwin, who was advancing the theory of evolution that also undermines the veracity and the integrity of the biblical account of the origins of man. Worse than these secular theories, worse than these secular theories, was the fact that the Baptist Union in England, of which Spurgeon and his church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, had been members for years, the Baptist Union was now embracing both Darwinian evolution and the documentary hypothesis. Your foundation, the scriptures, now you have God's people taking an axe to the foundation. Spurgeon called the actions of the Baptist Union a downgrade of the Bible and said this, quote, Believers in Christ's atonement are now in declared union with those who make light of it. Believers in Holy Scripture are in confederacy with those who deny plenary inspiration. Those who hold evangelical doctrines are in open alliance with those who call the fall a fable, who deny the personality of the Holy Ghost, who call justification by faith immoral, and hold that there is another probation after death. It is our solemn conviction that there should be no pretense of fellowship. Fellowship with known and vital error is participation in sin. He said, assuredly, this new theology of these men can do no good toward God or man. It has no adaptation for it. If it were preached for a thousand years by all the most earnest men of the school, it would never renew a soul nor overcome pride in a single human heart. What he said about the documentary hypothesis and the theory of evolution, I say about the theory of evolution today, and I say about critical race theory today. The same thing. It will never renew a soul nor overcome pride in a single human heart. With this declaration, Spurgeon and the Metropolitan Tabernacle ended their unity with the Baptist Union. For Spurgeon to walk worthy of his calling and diligently preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, division and separation were the only answers. How could he be assured that his choice was right? Unity. Unity with truth. Because for years, Charles Spurgeon was faithful to the call of Jude 3 which says that we must contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Yes, 
you must walk worthy. Yes, you must diligently preserve the unity of the Spirit. And yes, like Charles Spurgeon, Jude, and Paul, you must know the oneness, the singularity, the unity of our faith, and you must defend it. There is great motivation and encouragement in understanding the Trinitarian oneness in which we live and move and have our being. And that is what Paul is sharing in chapter 4, verses 4 through 6 in our text today. After two heavy commands in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, you walk worthy, you diligently preserve the unity of the Spirit. Paul declares seven ones of church oneness, which motivate a worthy walk and diligent preservation of unity. That's where we're going this morning. I'll say it again for you. Paul declares in the text... Seven ones of church oneness, which motivate a worthy walk and diligent preservation of unity. He blesses us with seven indivisible aspects of unity that frame and fire the furnace of all brotherly love and oneness. What seven ones of church oneness does Paul declare to bless and motivate our unity? You see it in the text in chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. One body, one spirit. One hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Seven treasures of unity here in the text. Seven blessings of oneness into which we have been called and blessed by God, which motivate a worthy walk and diligent preservation of unity. Please note in the text Paul's Trinitarian presentation of our oneness blessings. All three members of the Trinity present in these blessings. After all, what genuine unity is possible outside of the unity found in our Trinitarian God? There can be no genuine unity outside of unity with him. We see here that each member of the Trinity plays their own particular role in authoring, delivering, and sustaining our unity in the body. So let's consider these Trinitarian unity blessings, these seven ones of church oneness now in the text. We'll start with number one. Number one in your notes, one body from verse four. The first of seven ones of church oneness is number one, one body. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are motivated to preserve the unity of the Spirit when we know there is only one body. So read the text with me again from chapter four, verse four. There is one body and one spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling. Now please note in the text the words there is. In your Bible, they should be italicized, which is to say that they are not in the Greek text. They must be supplied. What's the point of needing to supply them? Because of how jarringly Paul has made this transition from commands to listing the blessings of oneness. His aim appears to be motivation for the task that he has commanded in verses 1 through 3. And this is a jarring motivation that comes without the verb to launch it into. He just moves right into one, one body. His focus is on this one body. Body is the Greek word soma. Soma appears in Ephesians nine times, and interestingly and importantly, four of the nine times the word body is used in Ephesians Four of those nine show up in verses 4 through 16 of chapter 4, starting with the one that we're looking at right now. Which is to say that there is an intensity of body language here in Ephesians chapter 4. Body is a metaphor. It's a, it's a word picture for us. It's a word picture of the church. Paul prefers this metaphor. He kind of made it up. 
Though there are others, kingdom he uses, family, temple, the bride of Christ. The first use of the body metaphor in Ephesians is at the end of chapter 1 in his prayer. Chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says, God made Christ's head over the church, which is his body. That's amazing to think that this gathering that we're in right now is called the body of Christ. You can just imagine Christ our head, and we collectively are his body. In chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says that Christ reconciled Jew and Gentile to God through one body, even his own body, hanging on the cross. We read or read earlier in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that there is one body with many members who make up the body of Christ, and each member was backed, sorry, sorry, baptized into the body, the Holy Spirit. Each member had to be baptized by the Holy Spirit for entrance into the body. We read that in chapter 12, verse 13 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says in Romans 12, verses 4 and 5, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. And brothers and sisters, that's just a glorious truth for us. Individually, we're all members of each other in the body of Christ. What a treasure of our salvation. What a glory of the inheritance been given to us by Christ. To be one with one another, to have purpose and meaning in this life. This is so massive to your identity. To know that you are one with Christ. To know that you are one with each other. I just think about a man that I met earlier this week. You know, if, if, if you're coming here and you were a former gang member, if you were a former drug addict, if you were a former thief, if you were an abortion doctor, if you have all kinds of tattoos over your body, even on your face, if you're an attorney, How precious. How precious. How sweet to know unity in this body. All of you, wherever you've come from, and whatever you've done, you're welcome here. This is the body of Christ. And when he has made something new, you are welcome here, no matter what you've done, no matter where you came from. How precious to know that even you have found a family in the body of Christ here. Can you see that? Can you see that the body of Christ is to be closer to you than your own family? I know of broken family relationships that exist among us. There is more family here than your blood family. You know that, right? Jesus said as much in Luke 14, 26-27. He said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. To be in the body of Christ, brothers and sisters, is to know, to love, and to pursue Jesus above all else. That's what's going on in the hearts of the people sitting next to you. What a treasure to us. Christ alone is the heartbeat of all those united in one body. Which takes us back to Germany for a moment. For a present day illustration of body failure. Have you heard this one? In Berlin, Germany, just this past week, ground was broken on a building 
a building for, quote, the house of one. Sounds like a united house, the house of one. What is the house of one? The house of one is a multi-faith worship center which will house Muslims, Jews, and Protestant Christians in the same facility. Wolfgang Schabel, who laid the cornerstone for the House of One, said, The theological aspiration is to be open to other spiritual perspectives with equal respect. Are we missing something here in this church? Do we have it wrong? Am I getting the gospel just way out of whack? Did, did I miss something in my preparation about unity? Should I be marching us all off to the House of One in Germany? Do we understand the Bible and the unity found in one body, under one head, who is Jesus Christ? Can success come from this project in Berlin with this man-made, phony unity? You realize that the government of Germany and the city of Berlin have their financial resources pushing this. In addition to worldwide contributions, they really want this to happen. Will Christ honor the work of these men, or is the house of one really just a work of Satan? Increasingly, this is the drive in this sin-sick world in which we live, brothers and sisters, and it's been going on a long time. It's called ecumenism. Ecumenism. What does ecumenism mean? It means just get along. Just get along. Peace. Peace to you. Peace to you. Peace and security, everybody. For you and for me. Peace. Satan is no fool. He will push this world to oneness and unity on his terms. He will use the Chinese virus and masks and mandates and threats of war and the fear of aliens, which is just man-made technology. He'll use all of this to achieve his goal. For believers in Christ, we hold the truth and we know Christ's body is not united with error. This body language, then, is something that you need to find helpful and you need to see it as simple. You're in one body. Your presence here matters. Your function here matters. We are less without you. We are more together in Christ. And moreover, not only is it helpful and simple, it's profound and personal. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. This is a profound and a personal message to us. It's a personal unity for us. How closely does the liver have to work with the kidneys in your body? How closely does your elbow have to work with your shoulder? Is it the case that the proper functioning of the lungs affect the feet? Yes, they do. The body, brothers and sisters, is a confined space. You know, if you've got elbows, if you've got triangles, don't worry. You get shook around up in the body long enough. We'll round you off. You'll be more like a marble. <laughs> Those rough edges, they'll go away. The body's a confined space, and your conduct in the body, it affects everyone. Are you mindful of the fact that your conduct in the body affects everyone? Are you mindful? Even the choices that you make in your intimate and personal life, the seemingly private choices that you make, they affect the whole of the body. We live in an age where flags are flying over the whole course of the month of June and really have been flying for the course of many years. Do you know the flags of which I speak that are flying this month? These rainbow-colored flags that declare to you and demand of you, these rainbow-colored flags, accept my sexuality on my terms. That's what those flags say. But the choice of homosexuality, transgenderism, LGBTQ is opposite to the unity 
that happens in body life in Christ. In fact, there is only one expression of your sexuality that is acceptable and profitable for life inside of the body of Christ. The God-ordained sexually expressed, the God-ordained sexuality expressed in the union of one man and one woman for life in the covenant of marriage. That's the place for the expression of your sexuality, which is to you a gift, a gift of God in his goodness. Read with me then and see for yourself just how profound and personal our oneness in Christ must be as it extends right down into the proper use of your sexuality. Chapter, 20, chapter 5, verse 25 of Ephesians. Read with me. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body. Do you see your sexuality is in the direct parallel to Jesus and his church? Verse 31, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife is to see to it that she respects her husband. To be in the body of Christ personally impacts your sexuality. Your expression of sexuality must honor God and his plan of righteousness. Because what you are doing with your personal sexuality impacts Christ who is the head. And it impacts all of the rest of us, brothers and sisters. Don't fall for the lies of this world. Don't fall for them. And think for a moment that your sexuality has nothing to do with salvation, with Christ, with the church. It's just something for you off in your bedroom. In your bathroom, in your closet by yourself, it's not. Your sexuality is a gift from God and is only profitable for you, for me, for the church, for us, for Christ, and for God inside of biblical marriage. Anybody say amen? amen. We can be united on this, can we not? Sexuality and marriage are inseparable. That's where that belongs. Yes, Paul's body talk is highly personal. Striking right into the proper use of your sexuality. This body language is highly personal. It is profound, it is simple, and it is helpful. And you and I would know nothing of it, except that the Holy Spirit revealed the body of Christ to us, which takes us to the second of seven ones of church oneness. Let's look at the second of seven ones of church oneness. Number two, one spirit. One spirit is the second of seven ones of church oneness in our list today in verse 4. We are motivated to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace when we know there is only one spirit. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. How is it that we can speak so boldly against the leaders of the movement that is homosexuality and transgenderism and LGBTQ? 
How is it that we can speak so boldly against the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church, Islam, Judaism, Mormonism? Because we have the Holy Spirit in us that leaders in these movements do not. To be a teacher of a false religious system, or a secular system for that matter, is to be unsaved, condemned, and headed to hell. Boldly, in the power of the Spirit, we must demand heretical teachers repent and believe that they might also be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, just as we were, and brought into the body of Christ through the working of the Holy Spirit, just like we were. You're in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. Read with me where Paul says, verse 10, For to us God has revealed them. What is them? Them is salvation and wisdom, and all that is contained in the end of verse 9, all that God has prepared for those who love him. These God has revealed through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man that is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have not now, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Because they are spiritually appraised. Knowledge of God abides in, lives in, tabernacles in, dwells in only men who have been born again by the Spirit of the living God. It is impossible for anyone to know God without the Holy Spirit. If you have been given spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear, it is not because you did something fancy. You did something special to get them. It's because of the grace of God who sent his Holy Spirit to save you. And now, the very Spirit of the living God who lives in you, making you a child of God and keeping you in the body of Christ, wants your unity and participation in the body of Christ. John MacArthur says the Holy Spirit is the inner unifying force in the body of Christ. Look also while you're in 1 Corinthians. Look over at chapter 3. Look at chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. Verse 16 and 17. Paul asked the question. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Verse 17. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. Who made you holy? Anybody want to raise your hand and say, I did it myself? I don't think so. No, you were sanctified. You were justified by the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of the Spirit, acting on you, even in the height of your wickedness and rebellion to him. Individually, you are a temple of the living God. Individually, personally, God saves us. Yes, absolutely, he does. And turn back to Ephesians 2. Because more than having an individual salvation, we also understand in Ephesians 2, verse 21, that we have a corporate identity as well. We love the uniqueness and diversity of each individual testimony of God's salvation that we have even here in the room. Your testimonies are also different. They're diverse. They're vast. Some of you were saved in an instant, much akin to Paul, without the whole scales thing on the eyes. And maybe not the heavenly voice. But it was instantaneous salvation. Something happened. The Lord struck you. 
And others of us here have been in Christian homes our whole life. We don't know any different. The Lord saved us somewhere along that path. And praise God that he's got all these ways to make salvation. I, 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 my testimony doesn't have to look like my kids. Praise God for that. I don't want my kids going through what I went through. They don't need to. They just need to be surrounded with righteousness. We, we need unity in our homes. And we have unity. We have unity in the body. We love the diversity of our testimonies here in the church. But we also must treasure the oneness. The oneness of our salvation. The oneness of our salvation. The fact that the Spirit identically saved every one of us. There's a diversity to your salvation. And there's also a great unity to your salvation. Is it not this way that he did this? Did he not draw you? Did he not call you? Is not the Spirit the one who is the orchestrator of all the vast, incredible details around you and your salvation? Is he not the one who uses all manner of people and places and circumstances to awaken us to the reality of our sinfulness and the vast perfections of a holy God who sent his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross to take upon himself the penalty of your sins? And dying on the cross in your place, he made atonement for your sins, something that God would never allow you to do, sinner as you are, corrupt to the core. You could never pay for one of your sins. Christ did this. These truths are not understood and embraced in a human mind, except that the work of the Holy Spirit has happened upon that mind first. Salvation is first individual, and salvation is for the purpose of corporate unity. You weren't saved to be a spiritual temple into yourself all alone. You were meant to be brought together. We read it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21 and 22. The Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, is the builder, stacking the people that he has regenerated and giving new life to them. He stacks them onto Jesus Christ, who is our spiritual foundation, verse 21, in whom Christ, the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, in whom Christ you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Individually, the Spirit saves us. Corporately, He stacks us together. He builds us together. He gathers us into a united body. And why would He do this? Why? Because we, collectively, are the bride of Christ. You see, from eternity past, God prepared a love gift for His Son. The Father prepared a people for the Son's own possession. That's you and me. John MacArthur says that the Holy Spirit, in one sense, is to us a divine engagement ring, given as a pledge of our inheritance, Ephesians 1.14, guaranteeing our entrance to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which you read about in Revelation 19, verse 9. Can you see in your mind's eye the marriage supper of the Lamb? You know, some of you ladies are extremely helped by what you saw this last Friday in the table displays here. But I'm telling you, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the table displays are infinitely greater than what you saw here. Can you just see it in your mind's eye? The tables are set. Your name placard is on the table. Christ took names to the cross. Those names are going to be on the seats at the table. The food is there. It's spread out. It's more than you could possibly ever imagine. And cooked perfectly, I might add. All of your joy is set as your brothers and sisters are surrounding you. Why? Because this is for Christ and his bride. 
Can you think on the glories of heaven as the bride of Christ, the church, is clothed in her fine linens, bright and clean, gathered in heaven by the power of the Spirit to be given to her husband, her head, the Lord Jesus Christ himself? What a marvelous thought. What a marvelous hope we have. This is our great hope. Eternal union with Christ himself in heaven forever, which takes us to our third of seven ones of church oneness. Let's go to our third of seven ones of church oneness. One hope you see listed third in verse four by Paul. One hope, number three in your notes. We are motivated to preserve unity when we know there is only one hope of our calling. Read with me again from the text in verse four. There is one body, Paul says, Actually, he says, he says like this. He says, jarringly, he says, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. One body, one Spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling. Just as, in these words, just as. Paul is making a comparison. He's even giving us a parallel illustration or proof of the certain blessings that we have in one body and one Christ. Or one, one body and one spirit. He's giving us a parallel. And what is that parallel proof? Your calling into the body of Christ has one hope. Eternal life with Christ himself. Just as one body, just as one spirit, so too one hope has been given to you. As a big part of the unity into which you have been called. One hope. Well, before we consider hope, I want to consider calling. It's important to consider calling. What do we know about this calling? Calling here is the Greek word kaleo which means to call or to invite, or I like this word, summon. Like the judge who is summoning witnesses by subpoena to show up and testify at a trial. Kaleo is used twice in Ephesians, in chapter 4, verse 1, and here in chapter 4, verse 4. In both instances, it is an aorist passive indicative. What does that mean to you? Let me explain it to you. It means this. Aorist means it was stated in the past. Indicative means it's a statement of fact. This is something that happened in the past as a fact. But most importantly, it's passive. It means that it happened to you. Passively. God is active in your calling. You are passive in your calling. Think about it. When you pray for someone to be saved, what do you pray? When you pray for a family member's salvation, how does it sound? What words do you use? I'm going to challenge you. There's a, there's a conversation been going on in Christianity for a long time. If you don't know these words, I'll make them familiar to you. You've got Calvinism and you've got Arminianism. I believe that all prayers are Calvinistic. I believe Arminians don't know that. But I believe all prayers are Calvinistic. I want to show you why. Do you pray? Do you pray like this? I believe a genuine Arminian, if they were consistent in their theology, they would pray like this. Do you, do you pray like this? Oh, Tom. Oh, Tom. Save yourself. Choose Jesus, Tom. Accept Jesus into your heart, Tom. I know you can, Tom. If you're smart enough, you will. I've shared the gospel with you many, many times, Tom. So just call yourself into Christ's body. Just call yourself in. That's not how you pray at all, is it? That's not how you pray for salvation. How do we pray for salvation, brothers and sisters? Don't we pray boldly? Don't we pray emphatically like this? Lord God, you alone have the power to save, the power to call and draw men to yourself. You alone can remove a heart of stone and implant a heart of flesh. 
You alone can end the wickedness and the rebellion of my son Mark, my son Tim, my son John. So, Lord, I pray against Mark's wishes that you will save his wretched soul. Lord God, call my son Mark to yourself and save his soul, I pray. Lord, let it be the case that you have elected him from before time began and you have already provisioned his salvation through the death of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, give Mark eyes to see his sin. Cause him to repent and to see Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Lord God, call Mark home to unity with you. Isn't that how we pray? All genuine prayer is Calvinistic in its sense because it honors God's sovereignty and his power and his electing purposes from before time began. We pray for God to act. We pray to God to call, and most often we pray that against the wishes of the person that we're praying for. The calling is not something that you do for yourself. This is a calling that is given out by God as a free gift of his grace. Further, we know that this calling is irrevocable. Romans eleven twenty nine. Not even you can take away your own salvation. It's irrevocable. Romans eleven twenty nine. Second Timothy chapter one verse nine tells us that this is a holy calling that's been placed on you. A holy calling, which means that it came from the infinitely perfect mind of God, the mind of perfection. Further, this calling in Hebrews chapter three verse one, we find out that it is a heavenly calling, that it originated in heaven, even in eternity past. And we will be going to the place from which we have been called. German reformer Martin Luther said, In our sad condition, our only consolation is the expectancy of another life. That is our hope, is it not? Eternal life in heaven with Christ. And when we say hope, you have to divorce the idea of hope from the worldly definition. The world wishes and yearns and craves and desires. Definitionally, the world, they believe hope is a feeling of expectation and a desire for certain things to happen in life. Not so with biblical hope, brothers and sisters. Turn your Bibles to Acts 26. Acts 26. Biblical hope is certain. It is confidence in the promises and plans and ability of God. Hope is absolutely certain that God will save some, even many, for the purposes of his glory and his eternal union that he will share with us by giving us eternal life in him. And this gift of salvation is available to all types of men. An evangelist in England 160 years ago had this understanding of hope. His name was William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. He went into full-time ministry as a preacher in the Methodist Church in 1852 at the age of 23. For nine years, the Methodist denomination assigned him a pastorate when his desire was to be in full-time evangelism. So in 1861, he divided. He disunited. He parted ways with the Methodists in order to share hope to the poorest of the poor at the east end of London. These people were hopeless Caught in cycles of depravity, drunkards, deviants, publicans, harlots, homeless scavengers digging through trash cans, barely eking out an existence. Their cravings were for beer and food and sleep. Four hard years later, after faithfully preaching the hope of salvation in Christ alone to these hopeless in East London, William Booth opened a Christian mission and got to watch God call wicked, wicked, sinful people to salvation. They shared the one hope of eternal life in Christ, and the Lord answered by opening their eyes to see that their only hope in this life would be Jesus Christ's salvation, the eternal life that is offered in his name. 
You're in Acts chapter 26, where Paul is standing trial before Governor Festus and King Agrippa, who have extensive knowledge, Agrippa does, about Judaism, especially the fact that the Pharisees believe in the resurrection from the dead, while the Sadducees, you know what I'm going to say, the Sadducees, they're sad, you see, because they do not believe that God will raise the dead. So this is the question. And Paul is pleading his case to Agrippa, stressing this very point. That he is on trial simply because of his hope, his confidence, his certainty that God will raise the dead to life. And he's done so in Jesus Christ, making the same resurrection available to both Jews and Gentiles through faith in Christ alone. Listen to Paul as he pleads his case in Acts chapter 26, verse 6. Paul says, And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? Then further in verse 22, he says, So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and to great stating nothing but what the prophet Moses, the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ will suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Brothers and sisters, this is the hope of our calling. Resurrection. You too will have life after death, specifically eternal life with Christ. Do you have this hope? Eternal life with Christ. Is this your greatest future prize? Are you certain about the promise of God through Christ of eternal life? Are you certain? Have you been called by God? Is he using this message today as Ephesians 4 verse 4 is explained to you? Is he using this occasion today to call you home? Is he calling you home? Are you called by God? Are you his redeemed and adopted child? Are you sealed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Do you love the life you've been given in the body of Christ? Do you participate in the body? Are you a member of a local church? Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Paul labored to give you the greatest theology in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. I sure hope that you get a chance to read chapters 1 to 3 and understand what you're looking at there is God's view of salvation. In chapter 4, Paul moves to commands. He says, based on everything that I taught you, I know something about you. I know the salvation that God applied onto you. And I'm going to call the best of that salvation out of you and make you act like the believer that God made you to be. He commands us heavily, then, in chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. Walk worthy of your calling, preserve the unity of the Spirit, and rightly so should he make these commands. But how could we ever meet these demands without proper motivation? You wouldn't meet these demands without proper motivation. So he moved quickly, Paul did, to, list, to a list of blessings and facts about the Trinitarian unity that God so richly equipped us with and has prepared us with. Those of us who are his elect his called, his redeemed children. We need not rush through all these seven ones of our oneness. We do well to just look at these three today of our seven. We'll come back and finish the four next week as we pick up in verse five of 
and 6 of, of chapter 4. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We'll talk about that next week. For now, today, it will be sufficient if we are motivated by these three first blessings of our unity. How should we be motivated and blessed by the unity that God has so richly supplied? Let me give you three blessings of our unity to reflect on. I still have you in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm getting there. We're going to get there. I'm going to read some to you in a second. But your blessings are these. Be blessed. First, be blessed. Be blessed to know that you belong to one body. Though your birth family may forsake you, you belong to a new family called the body of Christ, the church. Yes, at times the sheep do bite. But we know you bite too. Now we can handle biting. We, we know, we know that, that Christ in his blood, he purchased a path to fix biting, didn't he? Didn't Christ purchase confession, repentance, forgiveness, restoration and obedience? Didn't Christ purchase those things so that we can be restored with God? He did. We have a joyful place here. We have a joyful place consumed with righteousness, the pursuit of righteousness, serving one another, filled with grace and truth. Grace and truth, the likes of which, and righteousness, you will not find anywhere else in this society. You will not find them. Is your heart delighted to be in the church? Is this your home? Are we your family? Who knows that? Have you made a public profession of your membership in this family? Perhaps we should talk about membership at a time or two so that you can declare your unity to the body of Christ. Second, I will leave you with this. Be blessed. Be blessed to know that the Holy Spirit called you. He did it. He called you. He saved you. He placed you in the church. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will sanctify you and sustain you, preserving you to the end, no matter what. Not even you can take away the salvation that God has applied to you. Third, I will tell you this. Be blessed. Be blessed to know that your greatest hope is not in this earth. It is not tied to your performance or the performance of others. Heaven forbid that were ever the case. And for some it has been. But it's not tied to your performance or the performance of others. Your hope is tied to God's promises and the performance of Christ to come in the clouds and rapture us, dead and alive, into the clouds to be with him forever. That is the next stop for us, brothers and sisters, a meeting together with Christ in the air, followed by the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's close our time with this great hope. A meeting with Christ in the clouds is our great hope. That's what awaits us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. Bear with me now. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, who are dead, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Christ. For this we say to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. What hope. Father in heaven, thank you for the unity that you provide to us. Thank you for the hope that we have of eternal life in Christ and this meeting together in the air and a marriage supper with our Savior, the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a treasured time this morning. Looking at your word, bless the unity of CBC, Community Bible Church, or bless the, 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 the unity of your saints here. 
Bless the homes, bless the families, bless the individuals in their unity with you. Let them know with confidence and certainty the eternal life that we have in Christ. Amen.